1 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1, and then we'll go to 10, verse 16. This is in our 1 Samuel series, After God's Own Heart. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to, his, to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with them, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true, so now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring this man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city, because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are involved, uh, invited excuse me, will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you to a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. 
And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of, of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek after are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these things, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets. The people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? They saw also among the prophets. And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon, and we are thankful that you have given us the gift of your word. Your word is truth. Your word is light. Your word is bread that we need to eat to live every day. And God, we come before you this afternoon hungry for it, and yet we also know that we can't understand it, we can't digest it without your help. So we ask, God, that you would help us, that you would speak, that you would use my weak words to communicate your unbreakable word. And God, I pray that your spirit would soften our hearts. You always speak perfectly, God. We are just so slow to listen. We are so hard of hearing. We are so blinded to the truth. So God, I pray that you would help us. We come before you in humility. And I pray, God, that you would exalt yourself through this time. That you would exalt your son, who is the true king. And God, I pray that through Saul, we would see a glimpse of the king that we truly need, Jesus Christ. And he is the person, and his is the name by which we pray this afternoon. All these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. It was like a dream. It was like a dream. 
It was almost 1.30 in the morning, but he couldn't sleep. He was wide awake. And as he looked over the French countryside, it was like all his dreams were coming true. He said to himself, tomorrow I will finally see Paris. See, he was an artist, and Paris was an artist's mecca. And this has been his ambition from his youth. He had pushed himself to develop his drawing and painting skills. And while he had struggled as a young man to make a living, you know, the proverbial starving artist, he had actually succeeded a little bit in selling his paintings. In fact, to this very day, some of his paintings go on sale every once in a while. People buy them for thousands and thousands of dollars. But his life had veered in a different direction. Most of us know him as something else besides an artist. And he had followed a path far from what his youthful self would have ever imagined or dreamed up. And yet here he was. They arrived in Paris at five in the morning. So the records show, flanked by two friends, an architect on the one hand and a sculptor on the other, they drank in all the city had to offer. The touristy locations, they went to the Eiffel Tower and all of those things. But they also went to the opera which this man always wanted to go to. They went to the Bohemian neighborhood of Montmartre. Despite the man he had become, for this one day, this young, uh, this guy who had been this young artist came back to life. The young artist that he was seemed to come alive again. And as the day turned into night, he, Adolf Hitler, turned to his friend, the architect, and he said, wasn't Paris beautiful? There's a temptation to think, see, that the towering figures of history, even of the Bible, come prepackaged, that they were just who they were from beginning to end, that there was no development, that they didn't become who they became through a series of experiences and choices. But is this true? I mean, if you think about it, you know it's not true. Was Hitler born with a little mustache? Did they put him in swastika PJs? Did the doctor salute him as Fuhrer? No, they did. Of course not. So how does Hitler, the aspiring young artist, whose dream it was to go to Paris and to see the opera, how does that guy become the Hitler that we all know and don't love? That's the question that we're going to start with today because we read the text. Okay, and I know at least most of you, if not all of you, You heard what happens. Most of you know what happens, and you know where this is going. A young man, he is handsome, he is tall, he is modest, he's from a good family. He goes off one day just to find his father's lost donkeys, and he comes back with a kingdom. He's unassuming. He's not power-hungry. He doesn't desire to be king. But flip ahead a few pages, and we see that this same man becomes a paranoid maniac. He's threatening his most most faithful servants. He's even threatening his own son, Jonathan. So the question is, how does this Saul, the Saul that we read about, that we just read about, how does he become that Saul, the Saul that we all know and also don't really love? Saul will shape the course of Israel's history. For better or for worse, Saul will forever be remembered as Israel, God's people, their first king. But while you might be thinking, okay, cool, Saul, he's a king, right? He faces issues that I don't deal with. Sure, he was bad. Sure, you know, I can learn something from the Bible. It is God's word. But really, I don't have much in common with him. Here's the truth. In all of the Bible, 
There's no person, with the exception of David, who we'll get to in a few weeks or months, there's no person that the Bible zeroes in on like Saul. I mean, sure, we find out the flaws of certain people in the Bible. Abraham lied that one time, right? Peter denied Jesus three times. We see people at their worst, but we see Saul at his worst like every single time. His life is vivisected for us. The Bible doesn't just fly over who he is and who David is at 30,000 feet. It actually slows down and we're allowed to walk with him and we see his character. We see his choices. We see his failures. We see how he changes from this young man so full of promise and potential to the guy that everyone warns you about. The books of Samuel, they show us these people. See, the story of Saul is presented not just as the record of a kingship, like you might read about in First and Second Kings. All right, this guy was born, he was a pretty good king, then he died. No, Saul's story is presented as the rise and fall of a man of a human being with a nature like ours. And see, what God shows us through Saul's life from his humble beginnings to his tragic end is how a person, how even a regular person, you could say, goes from who he is today to who he will become. Now, Saul, in a sense, really gave his life for us, the days of his life at least, Saul is like someone who was born into a reality TV show. He lives his life before a camera. Billions of people have read his story. And he did it so that we could ask ourselves the hard questions. Who am I as a human being, as a person that God created, living in God's world? Who am I going to become? Who am I going to be in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Who am I going to be on my deathbed, when I take my final breath, what trajectory, what path am I on? We're going to look at this text in three parts. As we do, the search, the sovereignty, and the stewardship. Let's get into it. First, the search. The search, which teaches us to see the ordinary things in a different light. Samuel, by way of context, has been a faithful leader in Israel. He literally gave his entire life from the moment he was weaned to the moment of his death to serving the Lord and serving his people. And all the days Samuel judged Israel, God protected them from the Philistines. I mean, it really was a huge change. We talked about revival. Remember, I said from now on, things were going to be different. And they were. They were different. But now Samuel is old. And you remember what happened. James preached on it last week. They show up to Samuel, this guy who's given his whole life for Israel. And they say, behold, you are old. It's kind of messed up, right? Like, I, you, you think he doesn't know that? He wakes up with himself every day. Behold, you are old. But the point was Samuel was old, okay? We can't sugarcoat that. And he had put his sons in charge of some responsibilities, making them judges in Beersheba. But they weren't doing a good job, to put it mildly. So the people say, here's what we want. We want a king. They asked for a king like all the other nations. We want to be like everyone else. Why do we need to have this rotating judgeship? Give us a king to fight for us. So Samuel warns them, really God warns them through Samuel, be careful what you ask for. You realize what kings do. They rule you. They demand your service. They take from you. They take and take and take some more. Are you sure? And again, as James preached last week, this was a chance for them to say, 
Just kidding, right? We don't actually want a king. Thanks for saving us from ourselves to repent, to change their minds, but they don't. They don't. They say, no, give us a king. God, did we stutter? Give us a king. So God says, okay, if it's a king you want, a king you will get, and the chapter ends. Now, all that being said, what are we as the readers of God's holy book, what are we set up to expect? The search for a king, right? I called this first point the search, and that was kind of on purpose. You expected that in the very next chapter, they're going to go out, right? Samuel is going to go looking uh, from town to town. They're going to leave no blade of grass unchecked, no rock overturned. They're going to find the best in Israel and make him a king, or at least they're going to get like Simon Cowell and set up a show, and they're going to get the best people to come audition, Something, the search for a king. Now, the weird thing is, okay, and I didn't mention this, but the weird thing is, all of this is weird. Because usually you don't have to find a king. Usually it's easy to figure out who the next king is going to be, right? The next king is going to be the son of the previous king, right? Now, in America, we don't have a king. That's kind of the point of our country, the whole thing. Um, but still, I know a lot of people in America are fascinated by royalty. I know Disney has made billions of dollars telling us about princesses and kingdoms and Prince Charmings. And there's a popular show going on right now called The Crown. I haven't really watched it, but I heard about it. And the whole like conceit of the show, right, is about how the British royal family needs to pass on the crown or something like that. See, passing on the crown through the bloodline of this family, that's where the drama is. Okay, it's expected. You kind of understand how this works. But what we see here is kind of a weird like thing at the end of chapter 8. They got to search for a king. Why? Because there is no oldest son. Because there's never been a king before. That's the tension that chapter 8 sets us up for. We have no idea what's going to happen. They've never had a king. There are no expectations. Who is going to be king? Who is this guy going to be? What kind of person is God going to choose? What makes him qualified? Why are they going to choose this guy over that guy? So in chapter 9, as we turn the page from the last chapter, we begin with a search. And in general terms, we'd think it'd be the search for a king. But chapter 9 begins with a search. But it's not a search for a king. It's a search for what? Donkeys. Donkeys. Verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. Now, if you've been with us since the very beginning of this series, you know that this starts exactly the same way that chapter 1 started, how the book started. Introducing us to some random guy, where he lives, who his family is. And just like in chapter 1, it introduces us to a random guy who's not important at all, really. It's his son that's important. In chapter 1, it was Elkanah, and he is Samuel's father. Here, it is Kish, Saul's father. So we're introduced to the dad of the person we're actually supposed to care about. And that's the person that shows up in verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So right away, we're told quite a bit about Saul. We're told what he looks like. And just by the eye test, Saul looks like he might be a good candidate for king. He's not just tall. He's not just handsome. He's the tallest in all of Israel. 
He's the most handsome. It's kind of interesting. In Hebrew, it just says he's the goodest person, the most good. And they mean the most good in appearance. There's no one who looks better than he does. And to top that off, his family is wealthy. And to top that off, the term for man of wealth in Hebrew is actually gibor hayil, which might not mean a lot. But in Hebrew, that means mighty man. It's a word used for the greatest warriors in the Bible. Now, at this point in history, it might not mean warrior anymore. It just means man of renown, okay? But knowing Benjamin, the most warlike tribe in all of Israel, he probably was a warrior. He's wealthy. He's strong. Saul comes from a good family. He has good genes. And honestly, he's probably a good warrior himself. So if you want a king who looks the part, If you want a king who people naturally will want to follow, a king who can fight the Philistines toe-to-toe, a champion, you couldn't do better than the son of Kish. He's undiscovered talent. He's the diamond in the rough. And so again, what do we expect? We expect Samuel to show up in Benjamin, knocking on the door. Congrats, your son is the king. He's the best. But that's not what happens. Instead, the Bible gives us, as Dale Ralph Davis calls it, life on the farm. Right? It's this crazy thing, all of Israel appearing before God, demanding a king. The very next scene is just daily life on Kish's farm. Kish's donkeys have wandered off. Kish asks Saul to find them. So Saul gets one of the servants, and they search all over the place, through the hill country. They go to all these different cities throughout Benjamin. Finally, they come to the land of Zuf. Now, what is Zuf? Does it mean anything? It does, but you would probably have to have like the memory of an elephant to remember. Zuf is actually the name of Samuel's great-great-grandfather. Okay, now we talked about family, lineage, and stuff all the way back then. You can go back and listen. But this area was probably named after him. Samuel's family was also a great family. So right here, okay, this is where things start to shift into gear. Saul wants to go home, verse 5. Father's going to be worried about us. But his servant goes, wait, there's a man of God in this city or around here. Now Saul's like, "Uh, I don't even know who that is. We know who it is. It's Samuel. Saul's like, we don't have anything we could give him though. Okay, so right away, I mean, if you're just paying attention to the narrative as is, you're starting to like this guy, right? He's, He's good looking, but he's kind of a polite guy. He's considerate. The servant goes, don't worry, I have a quarter shekel of silver. And they go and they walk up the hill to the city and they meet the young women drawing water. And this calls to mind some of Israel's history, right? Some of the biggest moments in Israel's history happened when people were drawing water. You think about Jacob meeting Rachel. We're getting set up for something big to happen. The women say, he's just ahead. Hurry, you're going to miss him. He's going to bless the sacrifice and they will eat. And we talked about the sacrificial meal, but there's going to be a special meal. You have a small window where you can find him. So Saul and his young servant are rushing to catch up to this man of God, verse 14. So they went up to the city. And as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. And right here, okay, right here, the two most important men in this book thus far, are about to meet for the first time. Their lives are going to be intertwined until the day of Samuel's death. Actually past Samuel's death, if you know you're Samuel, right? And we'll get to there when we get to there. But it all started with a search for a donkey. Now, there are some reasons for this, I think. I think God wanted to introduce us to Sam, or to Saul, excuse me, before he was king, so we could see what kind of man that he was. But I think one of the reasons, one of the main reasons 
why this is put in here like this. It's told like this in the narrative. Is that we want to see this special day first as an ordinary day. It's the most normal day. From Saul's perspective, nothing crazy is happening. I'm sure donkeys have been lost before. But this is going to be the most important day in Israel's history since Moses. And see, here's the takeaway. You never know when or how God is going to work. Like we see God acting, but you can't put God in a box. And we already talked about how when Israel tried to put God in a box, even God's own box, the ark. You never know when or how God is going to work. You never know if today is going to change everything. Some of you guys know this. You were just living a normal day and then everything changed. I remember I was reading about Seth MacFarland. Uh, if you know who he is, you know I don't endorse that guy at all. Anything he's ever done, um, for, especially from the pulpit. If you don't know, who cares, right? Don't ever look him up. Just be blessed. But he, he's this celebrity. He like created some TV shows. He was... Uh, on the news, he was kind of in the news cycle around 9-11 because on 9-10, what happened was uh, he had a little too much to drink and he fell asleep and he overslept and he missed a flight he was supposed to take on 9-11. He's a rich guy, right? He's an actor. He creates shows. He flies all the time. He's supposed to take a flight out of New York or whatever on 9-11. And he got to the gate like a minute after they closed. And they said, listen, Mr. McFarland, is it cool if you wait until the next flight? Because we already closed the gate and it'll just be a hassle. And he said, sure, fine. You know, it's my bad. And then he's sitting there in the airport watching the TV. And then he sees the plane he was supposed to be on hit one of the towers. Like he, just because he just had a little too much to drink, just because he missed a flight that he takes all the time, his life was saved. See, the thing is, you never know when or how God is going to work. And when we read the scriptures, we learn that we should expect that any day could be a crazy day. Saul was not a man of ambition who dreamed of being king when he was a little kid. He was just searching for some donkeys. Today could be that day. And I think it's important to recognize how much the Bible uh, puts emphasis on today, whatever today is. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Today has enough troubles of its own. You know, the thing is today, you could lose a loved one. You could get in a car accident. You could get a phone call that changes your life. Today, you might get a check in the mail that you needed. Today could be one of those days where your prayers have been answered. Today could be a day where someone that you've been sharing the gospel with comes to faith. You don't know. Today could be the day that Jesus comes back. We don't know. When we start to view our days with expectation, we start to value them. See? And when we value our days, we begin to learn what it means in Psalm 90, verse 20, to number our days. Teach us to number every single one of our days. Each day is a day that the Lord has made. Let's not take that for granted. Every day is a gift. No day is automatically a throwaway day. And God uses sometimes the smallest things to accomplish his purposes. You might not even know it. I was going to talk about Charles Spurgeon and how bad weather kind of directed him into a different church. And that's when he was saved as a kid. And I just did. Okay, so I was going to cut it out. But anyway, I just did. See, when you understand this, when you see how the Bible presents the story of redemptive history, you see that every day is infused with meaning, with significance, because each day is a day that the Lord has given. And when you think about it, it makes sense. 
Because as someone once said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. I mean, our lives, our very lives, they all come down to just days. So if our lives are important, then every day matters. So even if nothing big happens, our lives are just made up of consecutive normal days. So here's a question as we talk about who we will become. How do you spend your days? How do you view your days? Are you the kind of person who always is thinking like, okay, tomorrow I'll do this. Five years, I'll be here. That could be the case. That could be the case. But how do you spend today? Because how you spend today is indicative of how you spend your whole life. Who knows what God is doing? And this leads to the second point. The second point, the sovereignty. That was just the setup. The search is the setup. The second point is the sovereignty. And we're talking about the sovereignty of God. And it reminds us that God has a plan. Can I ask you another question? How did you end up here? You ever think about that? I mean, I could, I mean, you could be thinking like really specifically, like how did I end up in this church today, right now? But how did you end up in this place, you know, in Texas, where you live? How did you end up being the person that you are? You know, for me, um, I get reminded of this all the time because I'm a pastor, right? And I wasn't always a pastor. I wasn't born a pastor. And sometimes I'll see people from like high school, uh, especially I, I went to high school in California. Back then when I used to live there, I would see people and they'd be like, what, you're a pastor now? As if they couldn't like make that connection at all. I don't know why. Because I was always so godly. Just kidding. I wasn't. I wasn't. I mean, it was obvious why they asked that. They never thought I would have been a pastor. And then sometimes I go back and visit uh, where I'm from, and I'll see people that I know walking around, and they'll be like, oh, you live in Texas now? And they'll be like, why do you live in Texas? And I'll be like, because I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, you're a pastor now? And it just goes on. They don't, they don't expect anything of me, I guess. But anyway, enough about me. What about you? Right, let's talk about you. Let's get the spotlight off me for a second. What about you? I mean, how did you end up right here as the person you are? You know, like, are people surprised that you're working this job? Or that you ended up moving here? Or that life took you? Are people surprised that you're married to the person that you're married to? Are they surprised that you're married at all? No offense. I'm never surprised. I'm like, you're a catch. You're a catch, bro. Are you surprised? Are people surprised that you go to church on Sundays? Are people surprised that you're a totally different person than who you used to be because of a carpenter that lived 2,000 years ago? Are you surprised? Maybe you're the most surprised. But here's the thing. There's one person who's never surprised. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. God isn't surprised by what happens here. God is never surprised because God is the one behind it all. Remember this when Saul fails. God specifically says, this is the guy. But remember this, when Saul fails, God knew even before he was king, before he was born, before the foundation of the world even, that Saul would fail as king. 
but he's still God's sovereign choice. Now, notice what God revealed to Samuel. It's so specific. It says, it'll be tomorrow at this time, and he will be a man from Benjamin. And in the same breath, God says, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Did you catch that? He doesn't say king, first of all. He says prince. He will be king. Yes, he will. But the first time God talks about Saul's calling, he calls him prince. Why does he do this? Well, in the ancient world, kings ruled by divine right. Okay, at least that's how they presented it. That's what they believed. They said, I'm king because the gods wanted me to, and I am an avatar of the gods, right? You belong to me. I'm even a god myself. That's what some kings would say. But God is clear to Samuel about Saul. It will not be so among you. He will be prince over my people. Do you see that? Not his people, not your people, my people. God is still king. Saul is to be king under authority before he is given authority. Now, step back for a moment. Okay, all of these things are unfolding. There's a lot of text that we got to cover, a lot of story we got to get through. But if you step back for a second, Saul doesn't know anything about this, and he never does. Okay, he's told what is the case, but he's not told that, okay, the lost donkeys were all to get you here. And even Samuel the prophet, who has been waiting these 24 hours for this mysterious man, he doesn't know what Saul is going to look like. He doesn't know his name. God doesn't tell him everything. See, the sovereignty of God is all over this passage, but the thing is, Samuel and Saul, they don't know the full plan. Saul doesn't even know the plan at all. Is God in control? Yes, absolutely. Do Samuel and Saul still have to live their lives? Also, yes, absolutely. See, I know a lot of you guys, you believe in the sovereignty of God. But we can go wrong a lot of times when we start trying to break down what that means. But the truth is, God is sovereign. And that should be comforting to know that God has a plan, that things aren't random that he can't be thwarted by human evil or Satan's devices. The Bible talks about this again and again and again, and it doesn't just have to do with big things and big people and important events. Wisdom teaches us that God directs all of our steps. Proverbs 16.9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord, what? Establishes his steps. Every step. See, friend, here, you and I are here at this very moment because in the plan of God, you were supposed to be here. You were supposed to hear this sermon. Uh, May God be gracious to you, my friend. But you were supposed to hear this sermon because God wanted you here. I was supposed to preach it because God wanted me here. God is in control. Now, there are two things about the prince that God says in these verses that helps color in how we're supposed to view the sovereignty of God for us. One, he will save his people, and two, he will restrain his people. Remember the context, okay? God, is, God was displeased when the people asked for a king. He warned them that a king would lead to misery, and yet the first thing that he says to Samuel about a king is that Saul will what? Ruin his people? take from his people? No, he says that the king, Saul, will save his people because I've heard their affliction. I've heard their cry. I've heard how they've been hurting. See, this is the God who is sovereign. He is gracious and he is kind and he doesn't always give us what we deserve. Thank God. He gives us better than what we deserve. And I mean, if this doesn't speak to you, 
I mean, just think about it. I mean, think about your life right now. Think about the good things. Do you deserve those things? Do you deserve to be alive? Do you deserve to be married to the people that you have, that you're married to? People that you have, what am I saying? People, person that you're married to. Remember, I am against polygamy. I talked about that in this series. What about your kids? Your kids are a blessing that you don't deserve. Your job, your house, so much that we, and of course we have problems, okay? I'm not trying to minimize that. But everything that we have, all the good that God has given, he has given it to us despite us. Despite us. Praise God. And at the same time, God still does give us what we deserve. It's kind of interesting. It's two different ways. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He blesses us, but he also gives us what we deserve in a sense. Understand this. Saul is going to be who God said the king is going to be. He will restrain his people. Now, what does that mean? If you're reading your Bible, maybe you've read this a hundred times in your Bible reading. What does it mean that Saul will restrain his people? Maybe you have a different translation and it says rule his people. And there's kind of like a weird Hebrew thing here. This word is hard to translate. Um, some people just go the generic route and say rule. Um, but in the study that I was doing, I was reading some commentaries. And one guy was saying that every time you find this word in the Bible, it's always negative, almost always negative. So it's kind of in the sense that he will rule in a way that will hinder He will rule in a way that will hold the people back. He will restrain them. He's going to be someone that at the end of the day actually makes the nation worse than better. It's kind of crazy. God will save them through Saul, and yet things are going to end up worse. And you know, sometimes God is so on the nose. It's crazy. Because do you know what the name Saul means in Hebrew? Literally, it means asked for. He's exactly the person that you asked for. You're going to get what you wanted. So the thing is, God is sovereign in blessing and in cursing. God is sovereign in good times and in bad. God is sovereign in big things and in small, like lost donkeys. So what happens? Saul approaches Samuel in the gate, and Saul doesn't even know who he is. So he asks, tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel goes, That's me. And he tells them, I know about the donkeys. They're safe. Don't worry. Now let's go because you're going to be the guest of honor at this meal. And Saul is confused. He's like, what? I just wanted to ask about, here's my money. You know, I just had a gift for you. I want to find out about the donkeys. I'll be on my way. And I love what Saul says here because it's so modest. We're going to be with Saul for a few weeks. So I think it's important that you see this. Saul is so humble, so unassuming. He has no guile. I mean, Saul is a likable guy. Are you sure I have the right, are you, are you sure you have the right guy? He's the guy who has every reason to be stuck up, and yet somehow he isn't. There's a sense in which Saul, he's the guy that you would want to be friends with. But we know how it turns out. Samuel takes him to the meal and gives him the best seat and gives him a good portion. Everything was planned. He sits in the seat of honor. He has the leg that he was, uh, pre- that was prepared for him. And then he stays overnight. If you look at the text, verse 26, then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. Now he doesn't know that he's going to be king yet fully, right? He's just like, okay, this is getting kind of crazy. This day is going weird. Verse 27, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. 
Now, this day is totally not what Saul expected, but this day unfolds exactly the way that God intended. From a search for lost donkeys to the sovereign anointing of Israel's first king. Now, here's the thing. I know there's a lot of info. Hopefully, I didn't lose you too much. Remember, I said you guys love the word. So, now we started this whole thing by talking about who you will become. Who you and I will become. Who I'm going to be. Who you're going to be 10 years from now at the end of your life. And the implication was you have a hand in it. I'm preaching the sermon so that you would change. That your direction would veer according to the word of God. I mean, we talked about choices. Remember Eli? It's all about choices. If you were for, uh, here for that sermon, your decisions, what you decide to do in response to God, it will lead you down a certain path. But we see here a peek behind the curtain of reality. And it's kind of like jarring, right? Because we think that we need to change and we need to obey. But then on, on the other hand, there's this pool. God is sovereign. God has a plan. I'm here because God directed me here. How do we reconcile the two? If God is sovereign, I know some people say, who cares? I'll become who I become. But that's not what the word of God teaches at all. God's sovereignty is not an exhortation to fatalism. Going back to the wisdom of God's sovereignty, Proverbs 20, verse 24 says, A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Okay, it's absolutely true that our steps are from the Lord, but we can understand our way. How? He has given us something. It's what Samuel mentions by name at the end of this chapter. I will make known to you the word of God. The word of God teaches us what to do. It directs us. We don't know all of God's plan. We only know what he tells us, and we're called to respond to the revelation that he gives. God never tells Saul again about what Samuel knew. He never tells him, and God never told Samuel what Saul would be like until he saw him. It's because Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children Forever, And usually we stop there, but right at the end of this verse, guess what it says? It says that we may do all the words of this law. We're not called to figure out the secret things, but to respond to the revealed things. And this leads to the final heading, the stewardship, the stewardship, the search, the sovereignty, the stewardship. And the stewardship applies to all of us because we all have a stewardship, whether we're kings or servants. Now, Okay, I know that we read the text already. There's a lot in here that we could talk about. There are a lot of rabbit trails we could follow, but I know we've already used up most of our time. So let's hit the main stuff, okay? First, Samuel anoints Saul with oil and he kisses him. Do you see that in verse one? The anointing was symbolic of God's choice and God's empowerment. God is going to be with him. And the kiss culturally in those days, I know it kind of, is weird to us, but you read about like holy kisses and stuff. In that culture, it was a sign of respect and affection. And it's subtle, but I think this is an important thing to kind of get in the nuance of the story. It's clear in the text that Samuel actually really likes Saul. He has a good first impression. Okay, and this is really, I mean, this is why I feel like Saul is one of the most tragic figures in the whole Bible, because we know where it ends. 
Second, after the anointing, Samuel tells him that God will confirm all of this through signs. He will meet two men at Rachel's tomb. They'll tell you about the donkeys. They'll go to the Oak of Tabor. You'll meet three men going up to God at Bethel. They'll have stuff to give to you. Then you'll go to Gibeath Elohim, where there will be a garrison of Philistines and some prophets. And God's spirit will rush upon you and you will prophesy. And whatever you decide to do, you can do it because God is with you. Okay, that's the summary of what goes on right here. And then he says, meet me at Gilgal. Now, the little details of what and who, they don't really matter for us. They matter for him. In the sense that they're just to confirm to him that this is all real. All of these different little circumstances are going to, they're going to happen, right? They're going to happen exactly as Samuel says. But for us, I think what we need to pay attention to more is the where of where all these things happen. Because these places that are mentioned, they might not mean a lot to us, like, because we don't know where these places are. But if you search through the scriptures, every single place is an important place in Israel's history. Okay, almost every single place. But Rachel's tomb is where Rachel was buried, right? But who was Rachel? She was the wife of Jacob, the mother of Benjamin. I mean, this is the tribal head of Saul's tribe. Bethel was where Jacob, who was named Israel, where he met God, where God revealed himself to him, where the angels are descending and ascending. Gilgal was where the Israelites first rested when they finally entered the promised land after wandering for 40 years. That's where they had the Passover. That's where they were circumcised again. And then Gibeath Elohim is where Saul is from. So you see what's going on here, what God, where God is leading him, this little treasure hunt or whatever, is actually about Saul touring these important sites and it being connected to his home. Okay, Saul is being placed in the stream of Israel's history. It flows through his life now. Do you see that? The mantle of Jacob and of Benjamin, of Joshua, is now being passed on to King Saul. And then third, God gives Saul a different heart, and the Holy Spirit rushes upon him. And this is one of the most debated parts of Saul's story. People still talk about it today. Was Saul saved? Because you look at the fruit of his life, and you're like, nah, But then you look at passages like this, different heart, spirit of God. Look at verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now, quick word, this whole proverb thing has to do with the fact that this takes place in Saul's hometown. They know him as a good-looking guy, tall guy, right? But they don't know him as a prophet. So now that he's prophesying, it's weird. And they start saying, is Saul also among the prophets? Almost like saying like, oh, crazy things happen sometimes. Now, one guy says, and who is their father? And people have all these theories about what this means. Is he referring to Kish as the father of Saul or Samuel as the father, metaphorically, of the prophets? God, who is the father of Israel? Unknown. We don't know. But what we do know is that by saying this, by including this in the text, we're directed to the source. And we're supposed to ask the question, where does this prophesying come from? And this, uh, and this is the question that we need to ask when it comes to Saul. Okay, is the prophesying good? Does it mean that he has the Spirit of God? Is he saved? 
It's ambiguous. And here's the thing about Saul's salvation. It's ambiguous. It doesn't say he has a new heart, which is specifically regeneration language. It says different heart. Different good, different bad, we'll see. And while the Spirit rushes upon him, this is Samson language, right? The Spirit would come upon Samson, and then he would, like, pick up a donkey's jawbone and, like, go to town on the Philistines. But even though there's a garrison of the Philistines in this area, Saul doesn't do anything. Now, in the old days, the Spirit of God would empower you for a task. It doesn't mean that you were saved necessarily. Even prophesying, what does Jesus say in Matthew 7? It says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. See, the text is getting at something with Saul. But first, verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to see the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. Okay, Saul's uncle gets it, okay? He knows who Samuel is. Everyone in Israel knows that the word of God comes from Samuel. They even know that there's a search for a king, most likely. It's almost like he's like, yeah, I talked to Willy Wonka. And I was like, did you get a golden ticket? What did he say? Come on, verse 16. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. That's it. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Saul had spoken, uh, Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Saul doesn't say anything about the most important thing. And we'll pick up with this next time. But isn't it interesting that the story of, of Saul's anointing ends this way? No announcement, no coronation, nothing. He doesn't even talk about it. And see, this is the issue with Saul that we're going to see for a while from this point. Saul is a person that you can't really figure out. At the end of the day, you're not really sure what to make of him. He does one good thing, and then he does a bad thing. I mean, even if you think about what we've seen so far, unlike Eli's sons, he's a pretty good son, it seems, right? Because he cares about his father. He's like, oh, he's going to be worried about us. Let's go back. So that's good. But on the flip side, what did his father ask him to do? Bring back the donkeys. So he's kind of a guy who's willing to kind of disobey, to kind of give up in order to do what he thinks might bless you. He has good intentions, but he doesn't always do what he's supposed to do. We'll come back to that. Saul is humble, which I think is good, right? He's modest. He's unassuming. But he also seems clueless at times. Like, how does he not know who Samuel is? His uncle knows. Right, everyone in Israel knows that Samuel is a prophet. So what's up with Saul not knowing? There's something about him that doesn't, he, he just doesn't get it sometimes. And then there's the whole thing with donkeys. Now, it's not his fault that the donkeys are lost, right? Like, he didn't lose them. But he doesn't find them. He doesn't seem to be a naturally gifted shepherd. And while that might not matter that much now, when we get to 2 Samuel, we see that David, the new king, is specifically lauded for being a man who will shepherd God's people. Saul, he's good and he's bad. And one more thing. The Spirit rushes upon Saul, like I said. There are Philistines, a garrison of them in the area. And Samuel said, do what your hand finds to do. You'll be able to do it but he doesn't do anything. He didn't necessarily disobey because he didn't tell him to do anything, but Samuel seemed to assume, okay, you'll know what to do. Right? He's like, you'll know what to do when you get there. Saul didn't know. Saul didn't do it. He doesn't take advantage of the power and the gifting that God gives him the way that he should. See, all the seeds of who Saul will become are already right here. 
He has great potential both for good and for evil. Right now you could see him going either way. But the seeds are there. And don't get me wrong. Saul is set up to succeed. He has the anointing of God. He has the spirit. He has Samuel's backing. He's good looking. He's tall. He's from a good family. He has good genes. And this is exactly who we are too. Okay, maybe not specifically in every way, but generally. All the seeds of who you're going to become are already in you. And you are set up to succeed. It just depends on what we choose to water and cultivate. We will go one way or the other. But the truth is, just like Saul, the word of God has come to us. Our lives have been given to us as a stewardship. And we can go this way or we can go that way. So Christian, think about your life right now. Think about today. Think about tomorrow. Where are you headed with what God has given you? What path are you taking? Think about this practically. What path are my choices in my parenting taking me as a father or as a mother? What kind of relationship with my kids am I cultivating? Do I put off quality time or do I embrace it and make time for it? What kind of behavior are they, my kids, going to develop if you keep on neglecting to teach and discipline them consistently? What kind of person are they going to become in the world if we shelter them and try to hide them from the sin that is in their own hearts as if all the bad things are only out there and not in here? What if you keep working the way you've been working? Putting all of your life, all of your best into your career, what if you keep wasting time the way you've been wasting time? What if you keep ignoring the counsel of the people who love you, who've been talking to you again and again about your issues? What if you keep sinning in the ways that you've been sinning? Where is that going to lead you? Where are you headed? Because Christian, you and I will have no excuse. Because we've been given everything that Saul's been given and more. We have the spirit of God living in us. We have new hearts. We have the word of God in its entirety. We have all the blessings we talked about before. So while Saul goes one way, which way are you going to go? See, by the grace of God, we can become who God calls us to be, like Christ. It's why, you know, and again, God is so on the nose sometimes, it's why another Saul could say at the end of his life, even though he didn't start so good, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. It's grace. And if you're not a Christian here today, maybe you don't know where you're headed. Maybe you're a Christian, but you've been far from God. You've been making bad choices. You've been going down a bad path. Guess what? Today is Palm Sunday, as James said, a day when Christians remember another king who also, in the providence of God, was looking for some donkeys. Hey, donkey. And he rode into Jerusalem, riding on it. He found it. Just to put it out there. Humble. But this wasn't a human who became a king. This was a king who became a human. This was a king who became a servant. He left his throne in heaven and he gave his life on a cross so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins, so that our eternal future could be secure, so that we could know that in his name, that at the end of all of this, we could be with him in heaven. He is ultimately who we need. Without him, we cannot succeed. And with him, we won't fail. Turn to him today, our true king, Jesus Christ. We'll close here.
We'll close here. I was reading about Hitler's artistic career recently, hence the intro, if you were here for that. And it's fascinating. Okay, part of the reason it's been kind of a thing lately, just in the world, is because Hitler's art was recently kind of put up for sale. And there's a lot of debate about it. Because on the one hand, it's very unique, right? It's kind of like an interesting historical thing beyond the artistic merit. And I think someone bought one of his paintings for like thousands of dollars. Um, but it's also very like bizarre. The whole thing was bizarre. Like you have a Hitler painting on your wall and someone comes over like, oh, nice painting. Is that Monet? It's like, no, it's Adolf, right? I'm not artistic at all, right? You can look him up online. You could see if it's good or not. I'm not an artist. It looked good to me. I was like, whoa, Hitler was actually pretty good at painting. He had talent. And that's the scary thing. Because someone was saying, you know, it's not that Hitler the artist and Hitler the Nazi dictator were two different people. Like, in talking about Hitler the artist, one person even said, I used to think it could have been anyone, but I don't think that anymore. It's the fact that he was an artist that made him so persuasive. He understood how to manipulate people. And sure, fascism might have shown up in Europe either way, but Hitler's gifts helped him tremendously in knowing how to synthesize different things to create a movement that swept an entire nation. And here's the thing. Hopefully you're not going to be Adolf Hitler in the future. We all are who we are. We all are who God made us to be right now. That is a stewardship. Your gifts, your time, your resources, your family, your situation. That's what God has given you. Your stewardship is your lives. What are you going to do with that? Where are you headed? Who will you become? Our lives are made up of days. Our path is walked just one 24-hour period at a time. So it's time for you, and it's time for me, as we walk with Saul, to think about where you're headed. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you. God, some of us need to repent. We need to turn around of where we've been going. God, we have been living in ways that have displeased you in ways that have squandered the gift of everything that you've given us. Maybe we haven't served people. God, we've been selfish. Maybe we've been indulging in sin. Maybe we've just been wasting our time, our precious life that you've given us. God, I pray that you'd help us to turn. And for those of us who don't know you, God, I pray that we would find the meaning and purpose that we're supposed to have in life as your servants, as your stewards in Christ, the King who became a servant for us. God, I pray that his death, that his sacrifice would not be wasted on us, but that we would live lives for his glory, by his grace. God, we know we can change. We're thankful for Saul that we can learn from him. God, we're thankful that we can change. We pray that you would help us by your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.